The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm seeing that a dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Justin Salhani. Justin is a freelance journalist currently in Paris who has written on both radical politics and football for many different outlets. Born in Belgium with a French and US passport, he mostly grew up in the US. After college, Justin spent several years in Beirut, Lebanon, where he was a journalist and almost a professional footballer. Two of his most recent ventures are also football-related. The first is Guerrilla FC, which started as a football team in Washington, D.C., but has since evolved into a creative studio and streetwear brand inspired by football culture. The second, founded last month, is the podcast The Streets Will Remember, which assesses the legacies of the greatest footballers on and off the pitch. Welcome to Radical, Justin. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So let's start with my introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? The first team was actually probably the U.S. men's national team, the soccer team, though my relationship in supporting them has changed a bit over the years. Was that the team with Alexa Lalas? <laughs> it was, unfortunately. <laughs> Second, what is your favorite political song? I have to say anything by Kendrick Lamar. No specific song? We Gonna Be All Right, I think, is a, is a good one for the moment. Okay. And finally, what is your favorite political book? Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth was definitely seminal in my thinking and has led a lot of my philosophy towards my future projects. Cool. So let's start with your Lebanese period. And your father is Lebanese, and so you must have heard a lot about that country before you moved there. How did living in Lebanon compare to the image you had of life in Lebanon? That's a really strong question. You know, I grew up with stories of Lebanon. I had only visited once when I was a teenager, but I grew up with stories mostly during the war period. But the interesting thing about that is my father being a journalist told those stories with a bit of a romanticism. You know, this was a day that was really successful for him professionally. And there was a weird ambivalence because of the fact that the country was at war and a lot of people were clearly suffering. But the stories that I were told kind of had a romantic edge to it. So I think I wanted to go explore that ambivalence as well as my own identity background and just to have new experiences. I knew at that time I wanted to leave the United States and see a bit of the world. And I think one of the most interesting things is that I was exposed to ideas I'd never considered before and points of view that I'd never considered before. When you spent your formative years in one place and you go into a completely new place, you're really pulled out of that comfort zone. And especially when I ended up becoming a journalist myself and sitting with people, you know, from people who supported groups like Hezbollah to other anti-Western factions versus people who maybe sided with Western factions and all the kind of uh, ideologies in between. You learn a lot. And these different point of views definitely opened my mind to new perspectives and really also made me explore and see the nuances and understand the human drive in a lot of ways. So it was really a fascinating experience and probably the best decision I've ever made. Can you just give a short overview for those not initiated into Lebanese politics about the different factions that decide politics there and the history? 
Yeah, absolutely. What you have to know is that the current political authority are predominantly the same figures that were in charge during the Civil War. Now, they're constantly negotiating and switching. What, the period that I was there, they were cut up into two different factions. There was a more or less pro-Western faction that was aligned with Saudi Arabia predominantly that was called the March 14 faction. And then there was the pro-Iranian kind of anti-Western faction called the March 8 group, which included groups like Hezbollah. Now, I mean, these are very broad stroke overviews. There's a lot of intricacies. There's, of you know, obviously deals, they, they coexist, they negotiate, they, they both serve in governments. So there's, there's a lot that happens there, um, you know, and obviously today Lebanon is going through a very difficult period. The same political powers are really still in charge, in power, though, you know, they've taken different kind of groups. I think these two traditional blocks of the March 14 and the March 8th that emerged after the assassination of the former Prime Minister Rafiq al-Hariri in 2005 have kind of melted away in sorts, and they've, they've built new negotiating blocks to bring different people to power. And ultimately, it's been the same failure for the last 25 years or more now, so... And you speak about political blocks rather than religion. Is religion not that important or no longer that important? Or is it part of the larger political blocks? Religion is definitely included in this. I mean, I want to be clear because the, a lot of the different political parties are delineated by the religion. That being said, it's not as if they're living and dying by necessarily their religious beliefs. It's more a way to build political belief blocks. So, for example, you know, there are two Shia parties, there's one predominantly large Sunnah party, and there's at least two or three different major Christian factions and two Druze, which is, a, I think, an offshoot of Shia Islam. It's a Muslim minority that kind of sees themselves as independently not quite Muslim as well. And there's two groups of Druze as well. And again, they are religious groups, but they're not necessarily driven by religion. They're not looking to religious leaders all the time, for the exception of maybe Hezbollah, who does have a religious leader. But even then, they're not necessarily always going off of the pronouncements of a religious text. It's usually based on their loyalties to what outside party who funds them, as well as different political realities. Now, the reality today which actually has been the case, but maybe the veil has fallen off a bit in more recent years, is that these groups tend to look to one leader. The leader does what's best for himself. And from there, the, the rest of the bloc kind of falls in line. You know, younger generations of Lebanese people have seen this, and that's what led to the, the revolution this past October, which a large percentage of the country took to the streets to participate in. But the current reality is based off of this situation, which started with these groups in religious and political blocks. And today, you know, with the country in a very dressed economic period where the local currency has seen a, a vast inf inflation, you know, people are really suffering. And it's down to this breakup and how political groups are divided. Right. Lebanon is also one of the countries with the highest number of Syrian refugees, if not the highest number, particularly proportionally. How does that picture into the recent protests? I think that's driven part of the frustration in Lebanon. You know, for a long time, the government has said things like, uh, because Lebanon has hosted so many Syrian refugees, and you see countries in Europe really scrambling to get hold of what was being called the migration crisis, and you've seen the, you know, figures from the Lebanese government give speeches at places like Davos saying, you know, maybe Lebanon can teach the world about dealing with an influx of people and with these sort of issues where a population of 4 million, 4.5 million people suddenly has another 1 million to 2 million new people living there overnight. It's put a bit of a strain on the already strained infrastructure of the country, though refugees have not done it themselves but at the same time they've become a very convenient political resource for the for the authority to say you know all our problems are down to these refugees they're the ones coming in here and causing all the issues even though many of the issues are long-standing so you know that's led to some of the frustrations 
Absolutely, though I think there is a vast majority of the population that is, if not showing solidarity to the refugees, at least sympathetic to their plight. And because at the end of the day, you know, many Lebanese who are living today were living during the occupation, the Syrian occupation up until 2005. And, you know, many of the Syrian refugees also suffered under a similar regime. There obviously have been many instances of discrimination against Syrian refugees in Lebanon, as well as other, I want to say, vulnerable people in the country. But that being said, you know, I think there's also a sizable percentage of the population that is sympathetic to their plight. But, you know, with a situation like you have today in Lebanon, many people are, are suffering. And so I think, you know, even if there's a commonality, that might not be the first thing in their minds when people are taking to the street to protest. Right. So tell us something about your almost football career in Lebanon. <laughs> yeah, well, it was quite brief, actually. I went on trial with a team called Safa, which uh, ended up going on to win the Lebanese Premier League title the following season. Because I never was uh, given Lebanese nationality, I came in as a foreigner. did a trial with the team. I was told I could train with the team. But to get game time, I dropped down to a team that had formerly been in the second division that was actually kind of competing outside any sort of official infrastructure or, any, or official federation. And the team was managed by one of the great players of the Lebanese league history. He's the first Trinidadian to ever play in the Champions League, actually. And his name is David Nakid. So I played for David for a while. And then he took over a team in the first division called Rasing Beirut. And my debut, where I featured in a friendly for them, came on. I think it was the 90-something minute. I jogged on the field. I was handed a, a jersey of, of a Palestinian player on the sideline. It was an XL. I'm usually a size S or M. <laughs> jogged onto the field, and the referee blew the whistle. Zero touches, less than one minute. That was kind of my professional debut. <laughs> the next match that I played in was a friendly between the first team and David's academy team. And I played with the academy team, and I tore my ACL, and that was really the end of my career. So no glamour. And as you mentioned before, you know, we, I started a podcast called The Streets Will Remember, and I don't think the streets of Lebanon will remember me. <laughs> Is there a relationship between political divisions in Lebanon and professional football in Lebanon? There is. Historically, team support is divided up by religious faction or religious political faction. Today, as far as I know, if this is still the case, Saad al-Hariri, the former prime minister, owns the two most historically successful clubs in the country, which is Ansar and Nejme. But met a friend here in Paris, a Lebanese friend in Paris here the other day that told me when he was a kid at school, kids would ask him, do you support Nejme or do you support Ansar? And the subtext being, if you support Ansar, you're Sunni, and if you support Nejme, you're Shia. Each kind of faction has a different club that traditionally they're supposed to support. Of course, some clubs have, you know, more supporters or there's always people who break the trend or the stereotype. The interesting thing, though, is that the players do not fit that. And so what you might see sometimes in the stands, if fans are allowed in or if it's not played at some faraway location, that they're trying to avoid fans coming to the game. So you might see fans chanting sectarian or you know other sort of divisive political chants in the stands. And then on the field, the players from opposing teams will be slapping hands and giving each other hugs. So there's kind of a, a break or an ambivalence that, that is kind of interesting. So how does that play out at the Lebanese national team? Because some other divided countries like formerly Yugoslavia and lately still Belgium have this kind of incentive and political pressure to have the different ethnic groups represented in the national team. Does that also play out? In Lebanon? As far as I'm aware, it does not. I know that typically the team is predominantly Muslim. And I think that's related more to socioeconomic factors than it is to any sort of guidance from the Federation. I did have a friend who was one of the lone Christians in the team a while back. And, you know, there are different dynamics that come in play with being a minority in the team. I know as well, recently, in recent years, there's been more of a recruitment from foreign players. 
Um, so you might have players who grew up in places like Germany or Scandinavia, but have never lived in Lebanon that are also appearing for the national team. But I don't believe that that is down to any sort of guidance from the federation. Right. And that's a very broad development. I remember that Algeria is full of players who were born and raised in France, I think Senegal too. And yeah. um, the recently parted coach Charlton did this with the Irish national team, where he pretty much brought almost a whole team from England. Um, That's right, yeah. I think Paris gives more players to national teams than any other city on earth. Yeah, I remember of the last uh, World Cup that I think France had by far the largest contingent of players having the players from France and then from several other countries. Yeah. Recently, you wrote a piece for Stadio with the title, I've been Ben Afra. What was that article about? Yeah, that was a very personal piece that looked at race and integration through the perspective of football. So football is often an expression of ourselves and our identity. And what I was arguing in the piece essentially is that when you are somebody of Arab descent growing up in the West, and particularly if you're somebody of North African descent like Ben Arfa, whose father is Tunisian, growing up in a place like France, where you're never... You know, I mean, there are many North Africans that will say they feel French and feel at home here, but there's also a vast percentage that will say that they don't feel particularly accepted by the mainstreams. And there's a number of historical cases to help that play out in very recent history as well. My argument was more or less that when you play football, you're expressing yourself as an individual. And part of the personality of a person that is growing up outside of, let's say, a place where they might be part of the majority is to express that sort of subversive idea or to, to rebel in a sense. What I argue is that, you know, for a player like Ben Arfo, every time he steps on the pitch, he's expressing himself and he's rebelling a bit against this idea that he should integrate, that he should give up his identity and go against his inner nature. You know, many people argue that if a player like Ben Arfa had been more agreeable, he might have been a star for Barcelona. But I argue a bit of the opposite. And I say that, you know, this idea of, of personal responsibility should maybe be turned on its head a bit. And that instead of really placing this idea that everyone should fall in line and do what society is expecting of them, that what if society could approach these people in less of a punitive way and more of a way of showing them love and appreciation and supporting them for being different, for being rogues. And, you know, I mean, this was a 500 word piece and I'd, I'd love to go deeper one day and maybe make a documentary of it that really investigates the ideas of race and identity of being a, an Arab or a North African in a place like France and how that is tied to what Arabs in France and in places like Paris do on a football pitch and how these things are tied together and how football is a vessel for expression. And this issue of cultural tensions, which often is just plain racism, has plagued many national teams. I'm thinking about the Dutch national team in the 1990s, which had a group of black players like Edgar Davids, for example, which was called the Cable, the Cabal, which accused the white players who were dominating the team of racism. We had a similar accusation by Mesut Uzil towards the German team as well as the German association. Do you think that these are just growing pains of relatively new multicultural societies or is there a specific football dimension to it? I think football is connected to society. I don't think football exists in a prism of its own. And so, you know, football has a huge platform and, and because it has this huge platform, it has a responsibility to work to eradicate racism in whatever way it can, you know, hopefully in ways of education and bringing along multicultural teams into the new era. You know, I think it's interesting you mentioned the Otsil example, because if you look at the statements from a lot of his white teammates, they said, oh, there's no racism in this team. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the statements from his teammates who are people of color, they either gave different statements that said this does exist in Germany and these are the messages that I've received, or they've said, you know, more subtle things to maybe protect their own back while they're still part of the national team setup. 
which is understandable. I think these are, in a sense, growing pains. I mean, as we're seeing with what's playing out in the U.S. right now, racism is not always overt. It's not always just latent discrimination. It can be subtle things. And so sometimes it can be hard to identify, especially if you're not taught to identify it. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. I would say that football reflects wider society. And these sort of things play out on a micro level. So there it is. Yeah. So let's move to football and fashion. Now, before we talk about Guerrilla FC, can we agree that David Beckham was a disaster for football in terms of style, like hairdos and bad tattoos? <laughs> well, I think that, you know, you have to, sometimes you have to take some risks. Not all of his played out. Uh, <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with all of his fashion choices, so I can find common ground with you on that. Though I do appreciate that maybe he was able to take football in some new directions at the time, or at least, you know, take some concepts that maybe already existed and introduce them to a new, uh, a new audience, let's say. Right. So what characterizes the Guerrilla FC streetwear brand? I would say first and foremost, rebellion and subversion. This is a brand that we built in Washington, D.C. in 2016. So at this point, you know, Obama was still in power. That being said, you know, Trump's rhetoric had come to the forefront. And what we wanted to do was make something that could be outwardly political. Now, I mean, we're not deep into party politics involved in every single issue. But, you know, when there's something that we want to say when we have a point of view, we'd like to express it. And this is something that you're seeing a lot more commonly now from mainstream brands like Nike and Adidas. And mm -hmm. uh, really, particularly recently with the Black Lives Matter movement and what happened post George Floyd's uh, murder. I think brands are almost feeling like they have to say something. Now they have to speak up where in the past that wasn't true. So this is something that we wanted to do from the start. We wanted to have a point of view. We wanted to be rebellious, you know, in the capital of politics in the most powerful nation on earth. So it was all about that. It was about fusing football and fashion, but doing so from a political nature and doing it from a subversive point of view. Right. Now, football gear has become a multi-billion business. Like, I mean, when I grew up in the 70s, you couldn't buy jerseys from a team and they didn't have shirt sponsors or whatever. Do you think that jerseys have become better and you know, it's more stylish? And what is your favorite club and national team jersey? Have they become better? Like so many things, I have an ambivalence here as well. I think there are more efforts to become stylish, but very recently, I would say post the Nigeria home kit from 2018. Mm -hmm. I think the reaction to that really opened the eyes to a lot of brands about how to make something that can cross this sort of cultural zeitgeist and hit the fashion, the music, the you know football, and hit consumers in, in all these different places. And I think we're seeing that now because you're seeing traditionally conservative clubs like somebody like, say, Chelsea, for example, in England, take more risks in their kits. Is it more stylish in a sense? I think that's debatable and subjective. I think there are maybe more kits today that are taking chances, which I think is great. However, to make a stylish kit, there still needs to be a story behind it. You know, it, it can't all be aesthetics. And I think that might be something that people are missing now. They're taking more risks. They're shooting for the stars, which is great. And maybe they'll land somewhere in between. But you always need a great story to make a great kit. The kit has to tell that story. In terms of my favorite kit of today, for this current season, I would say I really like the away kit that Olympique de Marseille has released for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, aesthetically, it's nice. It's a nice shade of blue. And I like the design of it. It features a number of buildings, some with little lights on that's supposed to be the landscape or the, not quite the skyline, but let's say like a, maybe an aerial view of the city of Marseille, which I think is really lovely. But again, it also talks to that story. Marseille's team is so important because it connects to the city. It's the living, breathing embodiment of the attitude and identity of the city. So that's why it's such a great kit. All time, I think for me, it still goes to the 98 France kit. And the reason I say this again is because aesthetically, it's a great kit, but it's also a kit that we were given enough time. We've had enough distance between to feel the momentous achievement of what was gained in that kit. 
And so I think, again, you know, when we look at kits, it's hard to remove the emotional attachment. You know, even fashion, even football kits have aesthetics, emotion, belonging. All these things are built into the story. So it is a multifaceted approach, I think. I noticed that you didn't mention the jersey of Jorge Campos, who was the goalie of the Mexican national team in the 1990s who designed his own jerseys. I think he will be very yeah, disappointed he, by that. I'm a big fan of Jorge Campos's work. And actually, you know, in his later days, he became more conservative. Like in the 98 World Cup, which was a great kit, by the way, for Mexico, he wore the inverse. So if they were wearing the home kit, he would wear the away kit. But I do appreciate kind of the mid-90s um, self-designed Umbro kits of, of Jorge Campos, okay. absolutely. absolutely. So who is the most fashionable player on the pitch and off the pitch at the moment? Oh, at the moment, off the pitch, I will say Pascal Kempembe of PSG. He's a big favorite of mine because every time he pulls up for the French national team, Googling, looking for where he got his jacket or, you know, whatever else he's wearing. I also want to say Megan Rapino. I think, you know, she's she's always looking sharp. She's got great style. She's dyeing her hair, which I've tried to pull off with less success. <laughs> and then if I can throw in one all time here on the pitch for me, I'll, I'll give you two, Ricosta and Lilian Turam. And that's because one, jewelry is key, and they both wore jewelry in a very audacious, really cool way. I really liked how Ricosta kind of glided around the pitch with his low socks, and that's something I try to replicate today. We get in fights with referees a lot about, you know, the size of my shin guards. So finally, what is the most important misperception about the relationship between football and fashion? This is a great question, and I think there are two. One misperception is that football and fashion don't complement each other because I think they absolutely do. And we've seen it hit off with some failures, but many successes in the past couple of years as different brands have kind of dove into the football scene. And some have done so with great success, like Daily Paper and Pata, which are two based out of the Netherlands, actually. And then I think the second big misperception is that there's no depth. You know, I think oftentimes, you know, I'll be introduced to somebody and they might introduce me as, oh, Justin is really into football. And it's kind of a conversation killer, unless that <laughs> person is also really into football. And I think that, you know, football, as, as you very well know yourself, Cass, there can be an intellectual side to football. It can be a way, a prism through which to view the world that is really great anthologically, sociologically. And fashion can be the same way. There, there absolutely exists, both in football and fashion, a number of people who follow it for shallow purposes, but it's not the rule. You know, it's not universal. And so I think fashion can tell a really amazing creative story and football can do the same in terms of not just creativity, but also community, bringing people together, as well as a number of other ways. Yeah, I fully agree. And one of the things that you also see is that there are more political statements being made by clubs through like shirt sponsor, Bohemian Dublin, for example, had refugees welcome on it. But also through fashion. I mean, Rayo Vallecano had a rainbow over its jersey. Normally it has a diagonal red banner and it made it a rainbow banner. And then for every color, it had a different political cause, something that San Pauli has also done. And so you see actually this integration of, of soccer, of fashion and of politics. So thank you very much for coming. Yeah, on the it's show, a beautiful Justin. place where they can all come together. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. So if you want to know more about Justin Salhani, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Justin Salhani. And similarly, you can follow Guerrilla FC on Twitter at, at Guerrilla FC with double R, double L, as well as on the website www.guerrillafc.com. And you can follow the Streets Will Remember podcast at, at TSWR podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It
goes against the grain And before you call me past it Give me a chance to explain You say come up to Paulie Newell He went with Danny Baker See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker I'm seeing down the dunker Playing with his beard No wonder that that's Capitale Turned out a little weird